0: I mean, the human story is one of us coming to gradually see ourselves as a part of a larger whole, less as individual groups and more as connected. And part of what makes us human is expanding our circle of who belongs and coming to see ourselves as part of a larger whole, then that's a good thing.
1: Welcome to the For the Love Podcast with me, Jen Hatmaker. Today, we're going to talk about how to reconnect with our purpose and meaning, both online and off, with author Chris Stedman. Hey everybody, Jen Hatmaker here. Welcome to the For the Love Podcast. We're in a series right now called For the Love of Reconnecting, if you've been around for a few weeks, which just felt like the right way to start 2021 coming out of 2020 literally physically disconnected, socially, culturally, disconnected from our own bodies, spiritually. There just didn't seem to be any end of the disconnection we've been experiencing collectively. And so we thought, what would it look like to have a series where we really discuss reconnection across all the spectrums? And so today we're going to talk about the internet. (laughs) Pretty big idea there. The internet and so, I think for most of us, the internet can be one of two places, you know, and both actually at its best. It's a place of retreat. It's about community. It's about belonging. I mean, that is largely how I experience the internet. This community, the podcast community, just a beautiful space to gather where we can learn from one another and be exposed to new ideas and experiences and perspectives. And that to me is the internet at its best. And of course, there's another side too the dark side where hate and division live in the comment section where misinformation is spread, where empathy is just vacant and outrage is constantly on full blast. And so, you know, I think holding both of those internet worlds in two hands is a lot. It's a lot to try and reconcile because this is all new. I mean, the internet is relatively new. We don't have precedence here on how to use it in healthy ways. We don't have a lot of information yet on how it is affecting us, how it's affecting our kids, what it means for our relationships. And so it is just a lot to consider a lot to really think through best practices to be able to use the internet as a beautiful place of reconnection. Thankfully, we have an incredibly smart and thoughtful guide to lead us through some of those questions today. I think you are really going to enjoy getting to know him. I feel more hopeful after talking with him like, ah, oh, I see a path. Like he lit a lantern and I see a path. So today I have on the show Chris Stedman. He is a Minneapolis-based writer and speaker and community organizer. He's the founding director of the Humanist Center of Minnesota, and then also served as the founding director of the Yale Humanist Community And then the chaplain at the Harvard University, he's going to discuss what all that means. By the way, if those words are like, I wonder what that means exactly, he's going to tell us. And then today he's adjunct professor in the Department of Religion and Philosophy at Augsburg University. He's a teacher. We talk about that too. He has written a really fascinating book that we're going to talk about today. I want you to pick it up and read it cover to cover. It's called IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. Doesn't that sound important? Doesn't that sound like kind of Where we are living right now, Chris is an incredible guide for us here. He is kind, he is warm, he is generous, he is smart. He very gently leads us through how we got to where we are in our digital lives and some of the dials that we can turn to find deep, authentic, connections with people, both online and off. So I loved this conversation. I'm pleased to share it with you. So with no further ado, enjoy this discussion with the brilliant and kind Chris Stedman. Okay, Chris, I'm just so happy to know you to have been introduced to just your really, really incredible work. Thanks for being on the show today.
0: Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have told my listeners already a little bit about your super impressive bio, but I wonder if before we kind of jump into this conversation, if you could talk a little bit more about you, kind of in your own words, sort of high level of who you are and where you've come from and and then even kind of what this past year has been like for you.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, so, I mean, for the better part of a decade, I was what is called a humanist chaplain. And if anyone's unfamiliar with what that is, totally understandable. <laughs> there are two words that I think are not necessarily all that widely known. I'll take them one at a time. So a humanist is someone who, I'm using it sort of in the broadest sense. So like many words, it depending on the context that you use it in, it can mean different things. It is sort of most commonly used to refer to people who consider themselves both non religious and non theistic, so who don't believe in a higher power, but who do believe in the importance of trying to live the best life that they can not only in light of sort of their own needs but the the what the world needs more broadly and then a chaplain is someone who helps open up space for people to explore big questions in life and so for many years i did this in the college and university context so i worked as a humanist chaplain at harvard and at yale and really what that meant is that i was supporting a community both of students and also You know, we were very open to people in the broader community who wanted to come together and explore, you know, what makes for a meaningful life and how do we live in the world in a way that responds to the very real crises that we see around us at all times. And the reason I ended up doing that work is because when I was growing up, I grew up in a non religious family, but I found myself. Really starting around 10 years old, really wrestling with questions about meaning and justice. And I felt like I didn't have the language to even articulate those questions, really, let alone a space to explore them. And when I was around 11, I was invited to an after school youth group at a church when I got there, I really found like I found my people because I found other people who were just as concerned with these kinds of questions. You know, what what does it mean to live in a world where people can be so cruel to one another? What is my responsibility in light of that injustice that I see around me? And I found in this church people who shared my concern for those things. Eventually, and it's a very long story, it's the subject of my first book, but eventually I sort of made my way out of the church because I was studying religion at a Lutheran college. And my professors, all of whom were Christian, really challenged me to ask myself what I believed and why I believed it. And through that process, I came to see that what had brought me into the church wasn't a theological commitment, but was rather what the church offers in terms of a space for people to wrestle with those kinds of questions and find ways to act together in response to the injustices that we see around us and so those have been the questions that have really been the driving force of my life and a big part of why i became interested in helping to support you know because i think wherever you land on these big religious questions we all have the need to explore those kinds of questions and to find communities where we can wrestle with them together and you know, I wanted to help facilitate spaces for people who fall outside of religious categories to do that. And so I'm not a chaplain any longer. I actually teach religion now at a university, but those still are the kinds of questions that we wrestle with in my classroom. And those are the kinds of questions that ultimately led me to write this new book, which might seem, I think, really different on the surface from my first, but is really about trying to understand as people leave the kinds of institutions where we have historically wrestled with these sorts of questions. Because as I think we all know, you know, the religious landscape in this country is shifting really dramatically right now. And not only are a lot of people leaving religious institutions, but even those who claim a religious identity are participating in these institutions at much lower levels than they used to. And seeking out, I think many of these people are now turning to the internet as a space to connect to explore these big questions together. And so I wanted to understand how does doing that online change the way that we understand who we are and what it means to be a person and what it means to connect. So that's my best attempt at a snapshot of how all that comes together.
1: <laughs> yeah, those are huge, huge ideas you're discussing. And because they're just so new without any precedence, the exploration of that is fresh and kind of wide open for examination. I'm just so, I have a million questions. We're going to go to the internet in just one second, but I'm interested because you, based on what you just said, you're, you're teaching students, young adults, you're in the space of these huge, heavy lifting questions that are, those questions are ancient, right? Those are questions every generation asks in one way or another, kind of in their time. I'm just curious what you... What are you observing right now with the young adults in these spaces? I I would just like to hear it from your perspective as a leader, as a teacher. What are you hearing? What are you noticing? What are some of the common through lines that you see with this generation when it comes to the big questions that you address?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that they are conceiving of how to go about wrestling with these questions in very new ways, ways that I find challenging often in a good way. But you know, when I look at the kind of current religious landscape, I feel, I mean, I'm a worrier by nature. So this it's sort of my default to worry. But I do, I do worry. And it might sound strange because I myself am non-religious, right? But I I worry about this sort of shift out of institutions. I understand it because I think that You know, institutions can be incredibly stifling, right? We see the ways that institutions have wielded their power in ways that harm people, that limit them, that restrict them. And that's a big part of why the shift is sort of happening. People no longer trust institutions to have their best needs at heart. They see institutions protecting themselves and, and the institutions sort of above all else. But I also think that, you know, institutions are containers. They retain sort of knowledge that's been passed down from generation to generation. And whatever you think of religion, and, you know, obviously, I have my own thoughts, you know, you're going to have yours. But I think one thing that religions do really well is that they have been around for a very long time. And so they are time-tested in some ways, and they have developed practices that help people connect with themselves, connect with others, you know, sort of return to these questions again and again. I mean, my mom considers herself agnostic, but she goes to a Lutheran church. And the reason she does is because it is a weekly opportunity to check in with herself and also to be challenged to ask herself, am I living my life in the way that I aspire to? Am I practicing the values that I want to try to practice? And I think transferring that work out of religious institutions into the internet, on the one hand, it brings a sort of freedom that I think is very powerful. And I look at younger people, especially, and the ways that they are imagining how to be in the world in totally new ways. And I find that very inspiring. But I also do worry about, you know, what happens when we move that labor out of these institutions that create all kinds of structures to help us reflect on our lives and forge meaningful connections and move that work to the internet, which is a totally new space where, you know, we don't really bring the same kind of self-awareness that we always bring to other parts of our lives, especially because we've absorbed this idea that it's, it's like not real or it's less real. And so on the one hand, my mind is constantly blown by my students, by the, you know, young people I've worked with over the years. On the other hand, I do worry about what is lost as we move out of institutions into this more sort of individualized experience of community and connection that happens online, which I'm sure, we'll, you know, we'll get into plenty of that.
1: They're just huge questions. And in some ways, we won't know. It'll be the next generation who does the postmortem on this first wave of internet community, you know, and what we didn't know, what we didn't even know we didn't know. And then just the long-term effects on our psyches, on our practices, on our structures, institutions. I mean, it's just, I can't think of a space that it doesn't touch this new way of being in the world. Like I find these questions fascinating and exciting and nerve-wracking. And it's just like, I run the gamut. Kind of like you, going, there's so many elements of it. Good, bad. Yes, no. Love it, hate it.
0: You see things about the ways that people can connect and express themselves online that would never have been possible even 15 years ago. And you see the positive effects all over the place. But then you also see the, the polarization, the atomization, the siloing, all the things that, you know, I think we all are aware of and worry about.
1: Hmm. So you're technically a millennial.
0: <laughs> I am.
1: <laughs> so you've essentially been fluent in the internet most of your life. I mean, this is your first language, you know, whereas in my age group, it's definitely our second language. And so you've lived a great deal of your life online. I wonder if you can just in broad terms, tell us kind of what the internet means to you today. And what is your personal relationship with the online world?
0: I mean, I sort of feel like I sort of straddle these generations because the internet, yeah, it's, it's sort of as far back as I can remember. The internet was there, but it was always sort of this discreet action. So like, we didn't have the internet at my house growing up. I would have to bike to the library and log on to the shared internet computer for 20 minutes at a time. <laughs> and it really wasn't until I was in my, you know, It was when I was in my 20s, is when I got a laptop, is when I got a smartphone. So I had to spend, you know, informative years of my life where the internet was like an activity that I would log into and log out of rather than this thing that's sort of woven into every moment of my day like it is now. But I think for a lot of us, whether it's our first language, our second or a third or whatever, I think it really snuck up on most of us. I mean, I know it did on me where it sort of just like gradually became the new normal. And I, one day when i was working on this book it, it's you know it just sort of occurred to me all of a sudden like oh wow when did the internet go from being this sort of separate activity which i think is where a lot of this language around like real life versus the internet sort of emerged from and you know when did it sort of become really part of the way that i m- navigate life in sort of every moment even when i'm not actually logged on it's not this separate activity or this separate space. It really is deeply a part of how I move through the world. And I think because that transition happened quickly and we weren't really sort of aware that it was happening, those are reasons why we haven't brought the same kind of lens to our digital lives often as we do other parts of our life. We sort of discount it as being a rich space for connection and for understanding ourselves. And at the same time, because it just sort of snuck up on us. I think we don't always think about it as a space that we are sort of ever-present in and how, like every space in our lives, we need to be able to sort of step in and out of it sometimes. So yeah, I mean, for me, the internet has... It was at first sort of this way of connecting myself to parts of the world that I couldn't connect to otherwise. It felt like something that I brought intention to, And then as it sort of became more and more woven into every part of my life, I stopped bringing the intention to it because it wasn't this thing I stepped into and out of. That's really what I've been trying to do for the last few years as I've worked on this book, is bring more intention and awareness to my digital life.
1: Mm. One thing, like going earlier back in in your sort of history with the internet, obviously one of the huge upsides of the online world is the ability, as you just mentioned, to connect with other people, with other communities, with other schools of thought, with being exposed to different kinds of leaders and worldviews. I mean, just, I know for me, that has been almost an entire advantage to my life, where proximity is no longer the driving factor to what our exposure can be. So you've talked before about being a teen, being a kid who was gay, but not out, and in that particular portion of your life, you began to find this online community, which again is that incredible access to ideas and people and stories that can begin to bring great like meaning and clarity to our own lives. I wonder if you could talk for just a minute about that specifically and what that meant to you, what, how that was so vital for you, what you began to learn about this space through the grid of your own personal story.
0: Yeah. So when I was younger, I mean, I didn't see any other LGBT people around me. I felt very isolated and disconnected. And I was also very afraid of what would happen if I told the people in my life about it. And so, you know, the internet became a way for, A, for me to find a sense of community and connection to other people who shared my same kind of experience. But also, it was a space for me to kind of try out coming out. You know, I could come out to people online first and it was sort of lower risk in some ways. If it went poorly, I could just close out of the window. And also, it would we didn't have the same kind of relationship as like my mom. So if I came out to my mom and that went poorly, that would be very different. But I talk about it in IRL in relationship to my childhood love of maps because I grew up really loving atlases. I spent a lot of time reading atlases and What I really liked about atlases is, is, you know, when I was growing up, my town felt very small. My world felt very small. But I could go to an atlas and I could see that I was part of something so much bigger. People communities, places that I could never connect to otherwise. And that really was what my earliest experiences of the internet felt like. And that is what the internet feels like at its best, even still, you know, it sort of helps me place myself in a broader context. And that really is, you know, I mean, the human story is one of us coming to gradually see ourselves as a part of a larger whole, less as, you know, individual groups and more as connected. And, and you know, we're in a a moment in human history where the challenges that we face are sort of more global in scale than they've ever been, you know, from climate change to, to pandemics, like the one that we're living through right now. And so, you know, we really, we can harness the internet to help us see ourselves as a, a part of a larger world like I did when I was younger. But as we also know, that is not always how the internet works. When I was first kind of getting my start as a writer, I have a very common story. I started a blog, the blog connected with an audience. And, you know, I would never have had the opportunities that I've had in my career without the internet. But I also got a lot of vitriol when I was first starting out. And what that caused me to do was to really put some walls up online and to, and I think we experience this often online. You sort of decide that, you know, you experience maybe, you know, someone is cruel to you or something, and and then you start to put out maybe a, a slightly safer version of yourself. You are less likely to risk vulnerability if it's been weaponized against you. And this is, you know, often encouraged by the platforms themselves that really are designed to get us to sort of see ourselves in terms of status, you know, what we do for a living. And, you know, this is another thing I talk about in IRL. One of the real challenges of the internet is that the person that we put out into the world online needs to be acceptable to our coworkers, our family, our students, and yet that's not. How we are as people. We've always been, you know, multiple selves. The person I am with my mom is a little different from the person I am with my students. and And it's not as if one of those is fake and and there's some real me, you know, who I am is a composite of all these different selves in all these different spaces. And the internet at its best can be another space for us to express things about ourselves that maybe we have a hard time bringing to other parts of our lives. And this was a common thread. I did a lot of interviews for the book and I talked to so many people who had experiences like the one I had in my adolescence where you know, they're able to bring parts of themselves to digital space that maybe they have a hard time bringing into other parts of their lives and it helps them feel more whole rather than more fragmented. But the internet also can make us feel flattened out, simplified. And so, you know, I think we have a real choice to make about how we use the internet and what kind of internet we want.
1: Oh, it's so true. Just we're all experiencing this and learning it in real time and feeling the effects of being a little bit splintered sometimes and flattened and it's so unnatural to the way humans have always operated in the world. And so we don't have a large body of wisdom yet to pull from in terms of what are the best practices here, right? How do we maintain our integrity? What does this actually look like? I mean, again, it's going to be like my kids and their kids are going to rise up and tell us how we got this so wrong. <laughs> totally. I'm sure I'm prepared to be like, we didn't know. If you want to get healthy and stay healthy, you need to know more about how you make decisions. That's why I cannot recommend Noom enough. Noom space in psychology and teaches you why you make the choices you do, and gives you the tools to make choices that nurture your body a little more. Noom gives you the knowledge to make really strategic choices that ultimately turn into long-term habits, and those long-term habits turn into a healthier and more confident you. And get this, more than 80% of Noomers finish the program. And over 60% have stuck with their goals for at least one year. That's some pretty impressive longevity right there. When I'm doing my Noom check-ins, I notice a huge difference just in the way I feel. Like I have more energy. I'm more upbeat. I don't reach for things that make me feel better just in the moment. I can take a second and think about how to actually care for myself. I'm just more mindful. And that is something I value so much right now. There is a science to getting healthier and it's called Noom. So sign up for your trial today at Noom. That's N-O-O-M dot com for the love. Learn how to get healthy with Noom. Sign up for your trial today at Noom, N-O-O-M dot com slash for the love. Okay. Back to our show. You wrote something actually in your book this sentence, I've thought about it a lot. You said about social media, eventually it was no longer just a place where I sometimes shared things that happened elsewhere in my life. It became a place where life happened. Oh man, this is true for me too. I wonder if you can talk about that more and when you begin to come to this realization, what the ramifications of that have been.
0: Yeah. My first book came out eight years ago, and I wasn't necessarily sure if I was ever going to write another one. But when I realized that I was writing another book was when... So it all kind of started in 2016 when I went through a period of a good number of changes happened in my life. So the long-term relationship I was in ended... My work as a chaplain came to an end, you know, and I was sort of going through all these different transitions in my life. But I found myself continuing to post online as if it was sort of business as usual. I was like still sharing the highlights and really wasn't bringing some of the more difficult things I was going through to my digital life. And I started to feel kind of split by that. And I wanted to understand why. Why was it that I felt that some things were kind of off limits And it's not that I think that we need to share everything in order to be real. You know, I think that it's really important that we have things that are just for us or just for our closest friends or those sorts of things. But it was more that I felt like there were certain things that I I could not share or, or should not share. And so that was when I started to realize like, okay, the internet is a place where actually I'm spending so much of my life. It's not just this sort of space where I go to, you know, share updates about my professional work. It's a space where I'm forging real friendships and connections and and yet I I feel like there are these big parts of who I am and what I'm experiencing that I that I'm not allowed to bring to this space and and why is that? And so, you know, I started writing stuff You know, because the way that I write is, it's me trying to figure out what I think about something. So I sort of write my way through what I'm thinking about. And sometimes that's just like journaling. (laughs) Sometimes that's just for me. But I realized it was a book when I was talking to other people about what I was kind of sifting through. And everyone without fail that I talked to was like, I don't know either. Like, I also struggle with how to show up online. And I also struggle with the fact that it feels like, you know, what I once thought the internet was is not what it actually is now. It actually is this space where I am truly living, where I'm doing things that I would very much consider to be you know, very real things, and yet I feel compartmentalized there. So we hear this idea that life on the internet is is fake or less real. And I think sometimes we want to respond to that because I think that's an incorrect idea, right? I think both of us can look at our lives and see things that the internet has, you know, things that we've done online, friendships we've forged, connections we've made that are very real. But I think sometimes people respond to that by sort of going the opposite direction and saying, well, life online and life offline are exactly the same. They're just as real as each other. And I also think that's not true. Because I think, as you said, <laughs> you know, we're going to look back on our relationship to the internet right now and see that we were doing so many things wrong. <laughs> and I think that life online really is very different in all kinds of ways. And we're in this big cultural shift right now from a pre-digital age to a digital one. And if you look back at human history and anytime there's been a large shift like that, you know, these kinds of shifts are really difficult and we get a lot wrong in them and we lose things in these shifts. I mean, I think a lot about like when the printing press was introduced, you know, that revolutionized the world in all kinds of really powerful ways. And yet, you know, who sort of controlled the printing press early on? You know, it was the people who had power and wealth and they decided what, stories got printed and what ones didn't and also think about how was information transmitted before the printing press largely there was a sort of oral transmission of knowledge person to persons passing down stories in that way and that facilitated certain kinds of relationships and communities and as knowledge became shared in different ways there were losses with that you know and so I think we need to be honest about the only way that we can sort of figure out how to live well online is not by sort of rejecting the internet as if it's this fake space or by sort of saying it's exactly the same as life offline. I think we need to be honest about what we lose, but we also need to be honest about what we gain. And I think it's, it's some of both, you know?
1: So if we're going to do kind of a good news, bad news scenario from your perspective, and as you've mentioned, we are in the middle of that shift right now. So some of this is just, we're trying to speculate from the inside, which is hard to do. We don't have the benefit of hindsight yet. What would you say as globally, we are making this huge shift into an almost entirely you know, digital age? What would you say we're gaining if you just had to high level it? And what would you say we're losing?
0: Yeah, so I think one of the gains actually is how new it is. So in the beginning of the book, I talk about the value of being bad at something and how, you know, when you're trying to do something that you're not good at yet, it forces you to kind of ask important questions about who you are and and what, you know, what you are really trying to accomplish. And I think about one of the real challenges this year in the year of COVID-19 is that we had to very, very quickly move a lot of things to the internet. And, there are sort of two ways that that's happened some people have tried to just basically sort of take what they were doing offline and just you know move it to the internet and we see this a lot with like churches that are just sort of broadcasting worship services online but others have said okay what kind of exp- when we have a a worship service what kind of experience are we trying to create for people what do we want them to feel what are we trying to facilitate and then how in this sort of new medium can we facilitate that same sort of thing? It might not look like what it looked like offline. And so I think that the fact that so much of life now happens online and it's so new gives us a chance to kind of go back to the drawing board a little bit and reapproach these, as you said before, I think when we were talking, what are really age-old questions about who we are, what it means to be in community with one another and responsible to one another and and to sort of approach them in a new way and to maybe discard some of our ideas about how to do those things that maybe weren't serving us anymore. And so I think that that's one real advantage. And I also think, as you said, you know, we're no longer limited by geography, by family of origin or place of birth. And we can, you know, connect with people in ways that we never could have before. And I think that, you know, sociologists talk about two different kinds of sort of relationships that we have, close ties and weak ties. So close ties are the people that we're closest to. And, you know, those are people who we're likely to sort of try to keep up with no matter the circumstances. So, you know, family, best friends, these are people that even if you move to the other side of the world, you're going to send each other letters, you're going to, you know, you'll find ways to sort of connect with each other. Whereas weak ties are people who maybe you meet them once, or maybe they're a friend of a friend or something, someone who, you know, circumstance will easily sort of take that person out of your life. But thanks to the internet, it's much easier for us to maintain those weaker ties now. You might meet someone once and follow each other on social media, and then they're sort of in your feed for years. And one of the real values of that is that weak ties tend to be people who have different perspectives than we do in lots of ways. You know, the people that you're closest to, often you've had similar upbringings or you share similar worldviews. Weak ties are people who maybe are gonna bring a different perspective into your life, maybe one that challenges you. And if part of what makes us human is expanding our circle of who belongs and coming to see ourselves as part of a larger whole, then that's a good thing. And so I think that those are sort of two really good things that are coming out of the internet the biggest challenge i see and i identify this as what i think is like ultimately the largest stumbling block when it comes to feeling more human online is the fact that the internet is not public space it's private space you know the platforms that we use to connect are owned by private corporations and Ultimately, their interest is not in us having the best experience online that we can. Their interest is in making money for themselves, um, which totally is understandable. But what that means is that, you know, if the content that keeps us online, that keeps us clicking and scrolling and viewing ads, is the content that makes us upset, that makes us angry, that polarizes us, that divides us, then that's the content that will get lifted up on the platforms and the algorithms. And so, ultimately, it's not that changing our individual relationship to how we use the internet is insignificant. It really does matter. And I think all change sort of starts on the individual level. But I do think that we need to sort of systemically transform these platforms. Because right now, if we're sort of mindlessly using the internet, which we all do. (laughs) The algorithms are going to move us in the direction of content that atomizes us, that polarizes us, that silos us. At least the internet that we have right now is going to. And so, you know, it's sort of like climate change. It's like, I can recycle, I can, you know, walk more. And those things are good. And they're going to change my relationship to the planet. But, you know, until there's sort of broader, more systemic changes, my individual changes aren't going to change the system that we all live in.
1: Mm. I want to drill into that a little bit more, if you will, because from my vantage point, that is one of the key disadvantages that I'm the most concerned about when it comes to the internet, the for-profit internet, which uses outrage and polarization you know, as incredible capitalistic tools to make money. And so, you know, I'm also leery of, you know, being a person who says in the good old days, because that's not entirely true either. But there was a time when we connected entirely in person, because that was all we had. And which meant we had people in front of us, like flesh and blood, who thought differently, who believed differently. Our neighbors would be different in some ways, big and small. But now it really is easier than ever and designed by design, pushing us into our silos. That is the way the internet works and it's meant to. It's meant to find the the buttons that press for me and for you and for her and for him, they're all different and shove us into these places that are so homogenous and then even full of misinformation Every one of us is feeling the effects of that in our culture right now. This sense of just absolutely being siloed apart from each other. And then the internet is a a fabulous tool to demonize and dehumanize one another. And it feels frankly, a little scary to me. I don't mean to be doomsday, but it, it does feel a little scary to me that the internet has been the location now of so much severance and outrage, which has always been sort of a breeding ground for civil war, for a complete societal breakdown. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts on when you say we are going to have to reimagine the way that we personally use the internet, if we're going to address this, if this is something we can't expect the big companies to do, because why would they? They are laughing all the way to the bank on this. We can't expect them to have our mental health and our communal sort of the fabric of our society intact. That's not their motivation. But if it's ours, how do you suggest we go about renovating the way that we relate to one another and use social media?
0: Yeah. I mean, I do think that some of it is just, it will have to happen on a a more systemic level. Like the companies are not necessarily going to change or they won't change their policies on their own, but we can, you know, find ways to make them, really, for lack of a better term. You know, I mean, because I think the we face a real crisis right now in the sense that the internet does, as it exists right now, it urges us to see ourselves as individuals rather than as a part of a sort of collective. And, you know, I, years ago, I wrote a piece for Vice on the growing number of non-religious, religiously unaffiliated young white men who are sort of moving into the alt-right, into white supremacist movements through the internet. So they're, you know, these are individuals who are sort of institutionally adrift or disconnected. You know, they're not a part of a religious group or something that sort of connects them to other people. I do think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that the internet that we have right now encourages us to see ourselves as individuals. And so I do think that, you know, we're going to have to in some really big ways, change the kind of internet that we have. But I do think that in the short term, there are ways that we can change our individual approach to the internet. One study that I found really encouraging, because I'm I'm very cynical. I'm, you know, <laughs> in my heart, I'm a cynic. And yet I, I think I try to find reasons to be hopeful. And one thing that I found that made me feel more encouraged was this study that came out of BYU. Because a lot of the studies we see about the internet suggest that, yeah, the internet is wreaking havoc on our mental health. It's making us more isolated, more disconnected, lonelier, all these sorts of things. And the sort of suggestion is that the more time we spend online, the more isolated, disconnected, atomized we become. But this study offered a a sort of counter to that narrative. And it was an eight-year longitudinal study. So it's not just some, you know, sort of random one-off study. They, They followed the same people for eight years. And what they found was that two people could spend the same exact amount of time online and have radically different experiences of the internet. And that it all boiled down to how and why they were using the internet. So whether or not they were sort of mindlessly clicking and scrolling, following the algorithms, leading them in in these sort of directions that make us more anxious, make us more disconnected... Or if they were using the internet in a way where they were asking themselves what needs they were trying to meet when they logged on and, and how they were going about doing that. And it's a difference between, in the book I talk about, the difference between deep play and shallow play. In shallow play, it's kind of like going to a casino and pulling the lever on a slot machine. You're just sort of like, you keep going back pulling, you know, hoping that you're going to get that buzz from the win, And oftentimes, that's what the internet can feel like. It's like you just log on, sort of hoping to get that that jolt of good feeling. You feel isolated, you feel disconnected, you feel lonely. So you log on, hoping to get that feeling. But in deep play, which is kind of like I talk in the book about the imagination games I would play with my siblings as a kid, where you were sort of creating characters, we're building stories, we're exploring who we are, we're deepening our relationships, all these really good things. And I've experienced that online. I've experienced that same kind of deep, but it all... So much of it comes down to whether or not I'm being sort of purposeful about how I'm using the internet and why and it is really easy especially in more anxious times and hello 2020 <laughs> you know it's easy to just grab your phone and just start scrolling and again the algorithms are really stacked against us in some ways it's kind of like swimming upstream but that doesn't mean that we can't swim just because right now under the conditions that you know we currently exist in it's more difficult doesn't mean it's impossible And I think if more and more of us bring more intention to our digital life, it'll also become easier for the platforms themselves to see that that's the kind of experience that we want to have online. I mean, they are ultimately going to follow the wind. Whatever, you know, makes them money is what they're going to pursue, which again, is why systemic transformation is ultimately necessary because the winds can always shift. Again, I do think in the meantime, we can change our relationship. And I've certainly have found that my experience of the internet, the years that I spent working on IRL helped me bring a lot more awareness to my digital life. And it's totally changed how the internet feels for me. I'm not going to lift myself up as this perfect example because I get it wrong 90% of the time still. But I also get pretty much everything else in my life wrong 90% of the time. (laughs) Right, right, same. (laughs) Well,
1: I want to ask you about that because you took a three-month social media sabbatical. A lot of people do that. I've done that too. It's always interesting to see what everybody's reactions to that season is. And it's not always the same thing. Will you tell us a little bit about yours and what you learned? And if it did, how did that change your relationship with the internet? Did, did it create any lasting changes in the way that you used it?
0: Yeah. I mean, so I'll be totally honest. The reason I took the break was because, you know, my book was due in three months and I yeah. really needed to <laughs> focus. Unfamiliar. Yeah. But also I was coming to the end of the process of working on this book and I was like, you know, I, I think I need to spend some time away from the internet and see what perspective that brings. And, you know, I'll be honest, the first... Few weeks were torture, really. I mean, I was going through actual withdrawal. Like, my friends were noting that I was texting them in like meme format, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. <laughs> totally. And it was very, very difficult. But then something shifted and then it was spectacular. Then I felt so much less anxious, so much more at ease, you know, all these really good things, which would seem to confirm this idea that the internet's bad for us, that it's making us more polarized, more, you know, anxious, all these things. But it occurred to me that, you know, the reason I felt more at ease, the reason I felt more relaxed, less anxious is because I was disconnected from the world. You know, it's like I was on a retreat. And of course, we've all gone on a retreat and and that's felt really wonderful. But part of why it feels wonderful is that you are not confronted with other people's realities. You're not, you know, if the world makes us anxious, it's because the world is hard. It's because we're having to square our own selfish desires often with other people's realities and needs. And and if, you know, being logged off made me feel less anxious, it's because I didn't have to think about anyone but myself, you know? And so I do think, you know, I make the parallel to the Velveteen Rabbit, which is this sort of touch point in IRL in a couple places. And it was my favorite story as a kid. I was obsessed with it. And it felt like a good sort of touch point for this book, which is all about what it means to be real online, because it's the story of this toy rabbit that more than anything wants to become real. And when I was a kid, I think my understanding of the, of what makes the rabbit real is that the rabbit is loved by the boy who's whose toy rabbit he is, and the rabbit's transformed by that love. But I went back and revisited the story as an adult, and I I felt like I kind of missed the point when I was a kid because, yes, that is a big part of what makes the rabbit real. But also, the boy gets sick, and he has to get rid of his possessions, and the rabbit is thrown out. And, you know, part of the journey of what makes this rabbit real is not only the connection and the love, but also the disconnection and the loss, And I think that in a time when we're sort of always plugged in, when being connected is kind of the norm, when you're always sort of one click away from from connection, it makes it much harder for us to experience disconnection, which we really need. We need that time away for perspective, not because life online is fake or less real or any of those things, but because there are questions, uncertainties, things like that that only arise when we're truly by ourselves. Oftentimes, they're the things that we're trying to avoid by being around other people. And so I think that we need the perspective that both connection and disconnection bring. I think that that kind of retreat has real value, but also we can't stay in retreat. I talk in in IRL about Thomas Merton and how at one point, he wanted to be a monastic and sort of off-disconnected from the world. But he came to see the value of retreat as being something that gives you perspective that then brings you back into the world. And I think that those social media sabbaticals or logging off or taking time away does have real value, but that its value should be to give you perspective that then brings you back into the world. That for me has been, I think, one of the biggest shifts in my digital life is trying to make sure that I take time away. And that feels especially important and difficult this year when digital connection is pretty much the only way that I'm connecting with other people. But it's something that I think we have to make a a real habit of.
1: Do you work that discipline into... Are you a per, a structured person who has systems? Like, do you have a thing? I turn my phone off at this time or I put my phone away on this day. Do you have any of that? I'm terrible at systems yeah, but I I, I'm fascinated <laughs> by them and I'm, I like the people who can follow them well.
0: IRL is not a sort of here are the 10 simple steps to follow for a more real digital life. It probably would do better if it was, let's be honest. <laughs> but I'd love to say that it's like a, a purity thing and I'm just like oh, I reject that way of thinking. But I Actually, I think there's real value in that. And sometimes I wish I was more wired that way. But I also do think that it's less a sort of, these are the exact practices that will work best and more of a constant sort of striving to bring that intention and awareness to your life. And for me, that's maybe going to look a little different than somebody else. And so for me, it's it's more of a trying to notice you know, okay, today I've been online a lot and I've been using it sort of to avoid something. I can tell I'm like trying to avoid something. So I'm going to step away and maybe see if that bubbles up. And often it does, you know, whatever that thing was rears its head. As soon as I give myself a moment of silence,
1: (laughs) I always stunned what is there just lurking right under the surface. If I will give it just the tiniest bit of attention this is great. You have so much else just packed into this book. And I really appreciate you tackling this conversation that affects literally every single one of us. And this is the time to do this work, I think. I don't think we wait until we have suffered the debilitating effects of the misuse of the internet. But now's the time to really put an eye on this. And, and I love how you keep using the word intention because that's very, very powerful. I don't find that nebulous at all. I find it a powerful resource that every single one of us has that we can bring to bear on the way that we are using the internet. And I have a bunch of kids and young adults, and I see the its effects on them, and so how I can parent well. Anyway, your book is jammed with interest, interesting conversations, interesting interviews, ideas, thoughts, research. Well done. Great stories are powerful, right? That's why I love this podcast. We get to hear people from all walks of life talking about their obstacles and their wins. And you know another place we get to do that? The Jen Hatmaker Book Club. And I want you to join today because if you love this podcast, you're going to love the book club. Here's the deal. Each month, we'll dive into a fantastic book and we read all kinds of stuff, fiction, memoirs, self-help, all of it. Every single book is something I have read and loved, and I just know you will too. After you sign up, every month, I'll send you a box with the book and other fun treats. Plus, your membership comes with a whole slew of perks. You get resources like reading plans, weekly summaries, discussion questions. Plus, you get tons of exclusive community stuff. You get access to our private Facebook group where you can connect with me and all your fellow members. And there's a monthly Facebook Live chat session with me and sometimes some surprise guests. Sometimes I pop into the Zoom meetings of our local chapters, which is always delightful. Plus we do some cool stuff with the book's author. They curate these awesome Spotify playlists just for us. Plus I record a podcast with the author or another special guest and we talk about the book. It is an incredible way to cap it all off. And you know what makes a book club great? the people. This community is the kindest, most supportive group you can possibly imagine. They have definitely been saving my life in 2020. Join us. So sign up today at jenhatmakerbookclub.com. We are here waiting to welcome you into the sisterhood with open arms. So join us at jenhatmakerbookclub.com today. Okay, back to our show. Listen, we're going to wrap it up here. This series is on reconnecting in a, in a million different ways. Obviously, you can see why we wanted to talk to you because connection and the internet is just so ubiquitous at this point. So, we're asking everybody in this series these questions, and you can just top of your head it. Here's the first way. Let's just say that's post COVID. Let's just say it's going to happen that we're going to go back to life and in in our normal way of being on this earth. What is your favorite way to connect with other people?
0: I'm going to use a word that's similar to intention, and that's the word attention. So at the end of IRL, I talk about my relationship with my stepdad who has Alzheimer's. And, you know, part of why I moved back to Minnesota a few years ago was to help my mom with taking care of my stepdad. And part of why I write about him is because when I'm with my stepdad, I have to really pay a lot of attention to him because, you know, he really needs me to and what happens when I'm spending that time with him is that everything else sort of slows down and I'm not only paying more attention to him but to our surroundings what's going on around us. And it makes me realize how often my attention is divided and how a lot of this has to do with the way that I often use the internet, which is mindlessly, and not as this sort of intentional act that I'm stepping into and stepping out of, but rather something I'm always sort of scrolling through. And I'm with somebody, but I'm also present in this digital space at the same time. And so I think my favorite way or something I'm trying to sort of get better at practicing is when I'm with somebody to really... Give them my full attention and how important that is, not just for them as a way of honoring them, but also for me in terms of the kind of experience I have versus when my attention is divided in different directions. And this is, you know, I talk in the book about research into how our brains work. You know, our brains just don't work like that. We just can't divide our attention like that. And so we end up giving somebody only a little bit of who we are. And we also only get a little bit back. And I found. I had these really powerful experiences spending time with my stepdad. And it was so much of it was just because I was giving for the first time in as long as I can remember, I was giving somebody my full attention and just what kind of space that opens up is so, it's so different from when your attention's divided.
1: That's so good. It's so real. I, as you're saying that I'm sitting here thinking about both the times when I have not giving someone my full attention. You know, I've got one eye here and I'm kind of nodding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually to a kid. (laughs) But I'm also remembering what it feels like to be the person who's only getting half of somebody's attention. It feels bad. Like this sense that, ah, this, whatever it is about this relationship or this moment, it is not enough to hold your attention or to warrant like a real 100% connection. And I'm so determined to not do that. And so, thank you for saying that really specific, old fashioned idea about just giving someone your full attention, like it's, it's honoring, it is.
0: I do hope though that you also extend grace to yourself because I do think we live in a time where our attention is so easily divided. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing that I try to remind myself when I'm having that kind of encounter where I'm on the other end and I'm not getting someone's full attention and I'm having to repeat myself and I can feel myself feeling slighted by that or feeling as, as you say, am I not enough? Part of what helps me feel better is remembering, like you know, a I've been that person, but b you know, so much of it is a result of the the world that we live in right now, and we're all trying our best. And oftentimes, you're right. We're not. Doing you're it. so right.
1: The next generation will put this on the list. <laughs> Things we got wrong. We listened with half an ear for a couple of decades. Okay, here's the next thing and this is more like introspective. So if you're kind of going through the middle of your day and you feel yourself wound a little bit tight, you're, you're, you're up here in the rafters. What do you do even just briefly in the middle of the moment to kind of reconnect with and like care for yourself?
0: yeah, so six years ago, I got a dog, and it totally changed my life because up until that point, I'd been working seven days a week all day, every day. You know, I was doing chaplaincy, and it's the kind of work that there's just always more to do. Getting the dog really changed my life because for there was someone relying on me to step away from the work. and I you know, I would have to take her on three walks a day. And in those walks, again, it was very much like spending time with my stepdad. Life would just kind of slow down a little bit. And I, my mind would be able to wander. And as, as I was saying before, you know, I would be able to, whatever it was that was sort of driving my anxious behavior online would reveal itself often in those moments. And, and so actually, I mean, not to bring down the mood too much, but my dog died very unexpectedly this summer. It was very, very sad. And yet I have continued to walk in part because it was this gift that she gave me of helping me see that sometimes when my mind is swirling or I'm stuck in a loop or something, just going out, taking a walk, sort of helps me hit reset, helps me take that moment for myself to ask myself what's going on in my world. And, you know, and and being able to see Even as I'm saying it right now, actually, you know, I I think right after she died, when I kept walking, I was seeing it as like, well, I don't even know what to replace that with those walks I would take with her. So I'm just going to keep walking. But now I'm I'm sort of hearing myself talk and I'm thinking, well, actually, it's sort of this gift that she gave me that feels nice to say. So thanks for that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I love that. I love that. I can't wait to continue to follow you online and see when you get a new puppy. Mm,
0: thanks. Yeah.
1: Maybe 2021 is going to be the year of puppy <laughs> for Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about getting to go out three times a day, probably more like eight. That'll really break up your day. Here's the last question that we ask. I ask every single guest this question, and you can answer this literally however you want. Big, small, serious, not serious. It is however you want to answer it. I learned this question from Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a priest. And so she says this, what is saving your life right now?
0: I have to say, I think what has saved my life this year has been teaching. So I actually, I mean, I never expected to teach. You didn't? No, I was approached about teaching this class. And I, at first I was like, well, I'm not qualified to teach that class. You know, I was a chaplain before, but then I thought about it. And oh, what is chaplaincy? It's about trying to facilitate space for people to explore these big questions. And this class that I teach is on vocation and the search for meaning. And so it's all about helping students think about, we think about vocation as this intersection between what your particular passions, skills, interests, needs are, and what the world needs. And sort of where do the things that you care about intersect with what the world needs, and you know, really, that is what chaplaincy is about: is helping you think about your own needs and and questions, and and also sort of to think about those things through the lens of what other people and what the world needs. And in a time when I you know live alone and I'm feeling very disconnected this year, as so many of us are, being able to teach this class, it's all virtual, but you know, to be with students every week to explore these kinds of questions, and oh my gosh, the things that I have learned from them. I can't even begin, you know. So that definitely has I think it was this thing that I never expected I'd be doing and when I was approached about it I was like I mean I'm interested but am I am I even qualified and should I and and I'm just so happy that I did. It's just been so it's been it's saved my year for sure.
1: I totally love that answer. And I just, I love that age group too, that age group of young adults and students. They're so interesting. They're so smart, highly engaged. They're paying attention. They're provocative. I, you know, I'm raising that age group and I just, I'm profoundly hopeful about what they're going to bring to the world as they take the reins from us. Me too. So fantastic. Before we log off here, can you just tell everybody like where they can find you, where they can follow you, where they can find your books, all of it?
0: Sure. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all of it is Chris D. Stedman, D as in dog, though it's my middle name, which is not dog. <laughs> and Stedman is spelled like Oprah's life, Partner, S <laughs> T E D M A N. And then, yeah, my website is ChrisStedmanWriter.com. And I have a little newsletter that goes out every once in a while. IRL is out now. You can find it at IRLbook.com or, you know, anywhere you buy books from. I definitely, definitely encourage people to support their local bookstores if they can right now. All of our local businesses need our support more than ever. And yeah, and I've got a, a couple new projects in the works that I'll be sharing more about soon. But for now, you know, just very grateful for the opportunity to get to chat with you and to chat about this book and about these questions that are we're very far from answering, but I do think are very worth our time right now. You know, we got to start somewhere. we got to start asking them before we can get anywhere close to an answer. You're
1: absolutely right. Could not agree more. And you're such a good leader
0: through it. Well, so, Thanks for the time. Yeah, I just really appreciate the approach that you've brought to this conversation. So thanks for that.
1: Thanks, Chris.
0: Yeah, thank you so much.
1: All right, you guys. Good stuff. And we barely scratched the surface. If you want more of that, more information, more of the research, more of the takeaways, if you go to jinhatmaker.com, underneath the podcast tab, we'll have this whole episode. We'll have the show notes and then all the links to Chris's website and his work and his books and his social media handles in one place. So you can sort of have a one-stop shop over there for more information because I think this is important. I think this is something that we deeply care about both as individual human people, also as parents who are leading the next generation through some of these like potential pitfalls. And so really, really grateful to have leaders stepping into this new landscape and beginning to light the path for us. So really, really glad to meet Chris today. Thanks you guys for being here. This Reconnection series has meant so much to me. I have learned so much. I have been so encouraged. I feel like I have so much hope because of these really important conversations we've been hosting here on the show. And so come back next week for more. Thank you for subscribing and rating and reviewing the show. Every one of those matters to us and let us know what you love and let us know what you want to hear. All right, you guys see you next week.